Hi, I'm Monica. And I'm Emma. Welcome to Fanfare, in which cultural luminaries invite their dream guests to dinner. Before we get into the show, can we make a brief detour into my closet? Always. Well, we've talked about this before, Emma, but fashion is like cooking. What? No. Well, yes, it all comes down to the ingredients. Oh. Yeah. When your essentials are solid, you don't have to own a zillion things. Nor should we aspire to, for obvious reasons. You don't need to have both sweet and hot paprika? Is that what you're trying to tell me? I don't think you do. And that's why I'm so excited that our sponsor for season three is Cezanne, a sustainable Parisian brand that nails the essentials. And this at a surprisingly accessible price point, given their commitments to quality and to eco-friendly business practices. Mm, they're a B Corp, aren't they? They are. Visit sezane.com to see what I mean. Her Royal Highness Princess Elizabeth, speaking from South Africa on her 21st birthday, marks the occasion with this simple but historic message. Let me begin by saying thank you to all the thousands of kind people who have sent me messages of goodwill. This is a happy day for me, but it is also one that brings serious thoughts, thoughts of life looming ahead. On her 21st birthday, the 21st of April, 1947, Princess Elizabeth was with her parents and younger sister on a tour of South Africa. In a speech broadcast on the radio from Cape Town, Elizabeth dedicated her life to the service of the Commonwealth. Little did she know at the time that she would be crowned queen, just shy of four years later at the tender age of 25 after her father's untimely death. Her subsequent reign, over 70 years, was the longest of any British monarch, and the longest verified reign of any female head of state in history. Think what you will about the British monarchy, but there's no denying that's a pretty good effort. So, be you a monarchist, disloyal subject, monarchy-curious non-subject, outright critic, Megan Lover, Andrew Hayter, or palace intrigue addict, welcome, join us, to plan herein, a dinner worthy of Her Late Majesty, Queen Elizabeth II. Luckily, arriving shortly to help us plan this feast will be one of our generation's leading HRH authorities, author and journalist Bethan Holt. In her current role as fashion director of The Telegraph, Bethan has done more than her fair share of royal reporting. Both her writing in the newspaper and her personal Instagram account are go-to sources of royal fashion analysis, with deep dives and historical references aplenty. Bethan has had a particularly busy time recently. The other day, she got married just one week after a tireless weekend of reporting on the coronation. We'd recommend reading her analysis of Kate's coronation look on the Telegraph website, if you were as curious about it as we were. And having updated and reissued her book, The Queen, 70 Years of Majestic Style, originally published in April 2022, last September, just after Her Majesty's death. In her book's introduction, Bethan remarks on the enormous chunk of history and the history of fashion that the Queen's reign spanned. I'm going to quote from it here. The second Elizabethan era saw the way women dress change almost beyond recognition. In the early 1950s, they rarely left the house without a hat and gloves, whereas now leisure wear and trainers can be the height of fashion. Trends for miniskirts, boob tubes, flares, and power shoulders came, went, and came back and went again. The way fashion is consumed has changed too, from genteel salon shows and homemade dresses 
to social media spectacles and shopping at the tap of a mobile screen. Through it all, she continues, the late queen's look was an extension of all she represented. It was stoical and cautious, yet dazzling and majestic. Timeless like that final tartan ensemble in the last official photograph taken of her, yet gently moving with the times too. Needless to say, we'll be glad to have Bethan's help working out appropriate style for dinner with... Elizabeth II, by the grace of God, of the United Kingdom, of Great Britain, and Northern Ireland, and of her other realms and territories, Queen, head of the Commonwealth, defender of the faith. Are you sitting comfortably? Then let's begin. Welcome, Bethan, and thank you so much for joining us. I trust we've all got a cup of tea at the ready. Tell us, from the beginning, where did it all begin between you and Her Majesty? Oh, gosh, we go back a long way. <laughs> but, well, I suppose it didn't quite start with Her Majesty. I think it began with Princess Diana, who I was obsessed with when I was kind of about 10 years old and it was kind of you know that year before Diana's very sad passing when she had that kind of very glamorous era of being a jet setter and she was in Hello magazine and I became completely obsessed with her and I suppose then when Diana passed away and there was so much attention about the Queen and she just captivated me as this person who was so revered around the world and yet was so full of mystique. And she was sort of the most known yet most unknown person. And I think there have been so few people that have ever really been like that. I think my fascination just grew and grew from there. And then over the kind of past decade, when I've been working in fashion journalism, but Her Majesty enjoyed this incredible kind of renaissance of popularity and was really hailed as a style icon. And I feel like kind of, you know, the first era of my fashion career coincided with her final era of her of her reign in a way. And I just became really fascinated by all the messages in her clothing and how she was just this immaculate nonagenarian, I suppose. And there had, again, never been a 90-something who was so stylish and so known for her completely unique and beautiful style. Bethan, when you say the messaging in her clothing, what do you mean by that? Well, the Queen and the royal family speak fashion is the only way I can put it, I suppose. I think all the rest of us are very used to being able to to say what we what we think. And of course, we might use our clothes sometimes to sort of enhance that message. But for the royal family, especially in the kind of modern social media internet era, so much of the way that they communicate with the public and with the world is through images and so it's all about choosing the correct color 
or choosing a brooch that has some significance. And we've become very good at reading into those messages and possibly reading too much into them. But one of my favourite examples of recent times was on the anniversary of the Grenfell Tower disaster. So this awful fire that happened in a tower block in London and many people were killed and it was a huge national scandal. And on the anniversary of that disaster, the Queen was out wearing green, which had been kind of adopted as the colour of the campaign for justice. And so it was really seen as her giving her support and her tacit way of showing that she really cared about this as a cause. In um, Tina Brown's book, The Palace Papers, she talks a lot about how the Queen purposefully doesn't express her opinion on really most things and even doesn't really, she has quite a good poker face. Like she could be sitting, I think the example that Brown gives is she could be sitting in the most boring concert like of all time and you'd never know whether she was enjoying it or not. So is fashion almost like an outlet for her that she doesn't have otherwise? Like, would you say that it's that or is it just being regal and terribly appropriate? I think it's a little bit of both. I think I think, you know, you were never going to see the Queen doing kind of what Diana did, where she wears a black sheep jumper and everyone thinks that's then her way of saying that she doesn't fit in in this family and it's all terribly (laughs) emotional and dramatic. Not a lot of revenge dresses either. No, no, we've never seen the Queen in a revenge dress. I mean, that would have been amazing. As far as we know, maybe they're just so subtle that we didn't catch it. (laughs) Exactly. I mean, I would love to find out one day that she had some secret wardrobe or something. So I think it's very much in her as in an official capacity. But I also think that fashion was a way for her to show a little bit of a sense of humour. It was a way for her within the, the confines of you know, how a queen should dress, she could show some some personality. So on her 90th birthday, she wore that kind of amazing acid green outfit, you know, that mm. really, it's only kind of 17 year olds at raves that can get away with wearing that colour. And yet as a 90 year old inspecting <laughs> the military troops, she got away with wearing it. And so that was a big message of like, hey, don't forget about me. I can still be fun. I can still be relevant, even though I'm 90. So yeah, she was never going to wear her heart on her sleeve, but maybe she wore her head on her sleeve, I suppose. Yeah, and it's interesting because there's a sort of a slightly more accessible aspect to what she wore. I mean, I'm not saying it's accessible in the specific sense of the term, but more so, for example, than the Queen Mother, her mother, who was by all accounts very obsessed with luxury or even like... Princess Margaret, her sister, was obviously more of a grand dame when it came to fashion and otherwise, and then follows Diana and Meghan, the two real fashion plates. But you do sense that she had fun with fashion, I think. Do you think that she woke up in the morning and sort of thought, acid green because I'm going to enjoy it? Yeah, I I think she did really she really liked fashion. I think we have to remember that this is a woman who became queen when she was 25. So she never knew any different. You know, all her adult life, she has been dressing for this role. But um, in the research for my book, I kind of did discover ways that she knew 
fashion could be something that she played with. So even as simple as like, she went off on this huge tour when she was in her 20s. And she was away for six months. And she was in all these far flung corners of the globe. And then she got back to London on a boat. And she went to lunch with her family and she was just wearing this very boring dress and everyone was like, oh, she's wearing a boring dress, she's back in London. And then she was like, oh, I'm just going out for a minute and just before they got off the boat. And then she changed into this incredible, you know, really fashionable outfit that she'd been saving for walking off the boat. And it was almost like this little trick she was playing on everybody. I mean, this is like queen levels of humour, you know, but within the confines of her role, those were the kind of fun that she could have. Her kind of off-duty style as well, I think, was very important to her. And that is, in a way, even more iconic than her on-duty style. The kilts, the cute little cardigans, that was how she let off steam. And I think what she would have worn if she was just another upper-class British woman tending to her horses. Those are her passions, I think. I love that. What you said about the boat is interesting because it is a way of expressing one's individuality when part of the rule, one of the major rules, it seems, in the firm is that it's not about you. It's about the crown. One thing that really struck me in your book was that she and Margaret were dressed alike up until their teens, Mm -hmm. right? Like they were really dressed by their, and this was pre-television, but they would often be photographed So presumably it was like coordinated on purpose. This is the day that this photograph is going to be taken of you two, you know, in your mid-teens wearing the same dress. And so it was really that tour you mentioned in her 20s probably would have been one of the first times that she was a solo act. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, her parents were very strong in wanting her and Margaret to be equal for as long as was possible. And of course, it wasn't really for that long in the end, but there was this sense of equality between them. And what's even more kind of astonishing about that is there's a four year age gap between them. And like anyone, I mean, I don't have sisters, but I imagine if I had a sister who was four years older, four years younger, there's no way I would ever have been wanting to wear what she was wearing, (laughs) especially up until maybe once you're like in your 20s or something. But yeah, I mean, I'm sure it, it was a bit of a nightmare for Elizabeth to be, you know, have four, you know, 14 years old, being forced to wear exactly the same thing her 10-year-old sister was wearing. Absolutely. That's good training for the stiff upper lip. There'll be bluebirds over the white cliffs of Dover. Tomorrow, just you wait and see. Can you tell us about some of the standout memories of the Queen over her long reign? I know it's hard to choose, but maybe your top three Queen outfits? Well, and Queen moments too. It doesn't have to just be about the outfits, but maybe the outfits make the moments. Yes. Oh, okay. I loved kind of the 1950s era queen generally and just the utter kind of demure perfection ladylike chic of that time and I think one that really stands out to me was a Hardy Amy's white lace 
kind of pencil dress with a beautiful sort of feather hat that she wore in the late 1950s and she was in Australia at the time and it was really hailed as just moment of extreme chic and I think it's an outfit that you could wear today as well and just look incredibly poised and polished and and beautiful in it so that is certainly one yeah that was I suppose quite a kind of fashiony moment but you know one when she she really kind of epitomized yeah just that kind of 1950s glamour for sure and then I suppose I really loved as well her kind of 70s kind of caftan era I mean she didn't go like the full caftan like Princess Margaret but she certainly did some some really beautiful kind of evening gowns there was particularly a tour as well to the Middle East which I think really epitomized how clever she was at diplomatic dressing and you know this was a very kind of tricky thing for her as a woman Mm -hmm. to be going to the Middle East as a head of state I think she was at banquets where there were like hundreds of men and then just her and she she didn't shy away from that challenge and I loved yeah she she had her her normal style would have been a kind of knee length kind of dress but she went she went long and elegant um and she had these beautiful turban um headpieces made to cover her hair as well and actually she just ended up really kind of wowing and and wooing those people that she was visiting so i really loved loved that and then Yeah, I mean, I just loved how much fun she had with her style a little bit later in her reign. I suppose one that really became a big moment of obsession for the fashion industry was when she arrived at the train station wearing a Burberry headscarf. I don't know if you remember that. Oh, yeah. But uh, what was really nice about that was a little bit different. She was wearing like a very beautiful camel coat and then this Burberry headscarf. She was so known, obviously, for her headscarves. But to wear one in the that's very recognisably Burberry, I think, was um, a stroke of genius. And again, it just it's just that dropping that look out there and everyone just kind of going wild for it. So I suppose they were all, you know, less about the moment and more about the clothes. But yeah, there's so many big occasions that she was so good for dressing, that she did so well to kind of rise to the occasion as well. But I, I like absolutely, those. yeah. And and I'm actually curious about the behind the scenes that goes into iconic looks like that. So in your book, you mention her dresser, Angela Kelly's quote, I do not dress the queen, the queen dresses herself. We supply her with the clothes. There is a difference. Do you really think she picked all of her own looks? How involved would she really have been? I'm really curious what the process looked like and also if that process would be similar for current members of the royal family today or if that's kind of developed and maybe Kate has a totally different process. So I think the Queen would never have worn anything that she didn't like. You know, she was very particular. So it would always have her seal of approval. But also a lot of the time also her husband's approval. Mm. There there are quite a few stories of, you know, that she'd showed Philip the outfit and he didn't like it. And so therefore that she didn't wear it or he had said, oh, why don't you wear it this way? And then she wore it that way. And, you know, so I think she really valued his opinion as well. Mm. Of course, she was a very busy woman. 
And so she wasn't spending all her time out shopping and things. She had a team. Catherine doesn't have a team of dressmakers. The Queen did have, she had an in-house milliner, an in-house dresser, seamstresses. So, you know, they were there creating her outfits and Angela Kelly describes like the whole stores of fabrics that they would have and they would just go in and kind of select different fabrics they were going to use. So it was almost like her own in-house couturier. But I just want to come back to something you said. Catherine just, is she like on net-a-porter? Like I don't, (laughs) on matches fashion. (laughs) She has two or three people helping her. But I guess what I meant is that she doesn't have people actually making her clothes. She has, Mm. she's much more working in the way that a celebrity works, you know, like with a stylist. So they call pieces in, they collaborate with different designers. Um, So she has her kind of favoured designers who would be like Alexander McQueen, Jenny Packham, several different kind of London designers that she works with closely. Whereas the Queen only worked with a very, very small number of kind of outside labels. And certainly in the later years, it was only this designer called Stuart Parvin who would make anything for her apart from Angela Kelly and her team. So it was a very hands-on process. And I think that kind of meant that the Queen could kind of be doing her paperwork and then she could sort of nip downstairs and see how that dress for next week's event was coming on. Um, So she could be quite involved. Okay, wait, I'm I'm, I'm actually obsessed with this topic. Sorry, I have one more. (laughs) What about Diana? What is your understanding of Diana's selection process? Would have, because she obviously wore outside designers. I mean, they were all gagging to (laughs) dress her out. Yeah. How did that process work? So Diana worked very closely with a woman named um, Anna Harvey, who was a fashion editor at Vogue at the time. Yeah, it would kind of be like the Princess of Wales today having, you know, one of the Vogue team on call all the time. Yeah, so Diana had that. And then Anna would introduce her to certain designers. And I mean, Diana, like, loved fashion, like, seriously like lived and breathed it Mm -hmm. exactly so she would get really involved really excited and she became really close friends with lots of the designers who made clothes for her so I think it became a genuine source of pleasure for her yeah so they've all done it slightly differently but there's a lot of kind of codes that run through all the different ways of doing it I would say. Beth and I've just come across a passage in your book that seems to shed light on some of this The queen and queen mother do not want to be fashion setters, Norman Hartnell once said. That's left to other people with less important work to do. Their clothes have to have a non-sensational elegance. I think that's interesting, this notion that like the queen and the queen mother are almost kind of servant leaders. You know, it's not their job to make a huge splash. It's their job to be, it seems similar to her communication strategy. It's not about her opinion. It's this kind of subdued elegance that you can really trust, but that's never going to, that's not meant to take over the front page. Is that the right interpretation? Is that what he meant? Yeah, I think, I think you're exactly right. And I think, I think as well, there's this very interesting line between, you know, obviously the thing that ties celebrity and royalty is fame, but royalty and celebrity work in very different ways. And I think that anyone related to royalty doesn't want to kind of bleed the edges with celebrity because that's where they feel it all goes wrong and you kind of lose the magic and I think 
that there was historically a feeling that people like Diana, for example, were veering too close to the edge of celebrity mm-hmm. rather than maintaining this mystique of majesty and of, and of royalty. And so I think that is something that the clothes have to work really hard at is maintaining this aura of them being on another level and being these almost kind of divine creatures, I suppose. Today, those lines are even more confusing and blurred because Mm -hmm. the challenge today is that we don't necessarily want our royals in the same image as the queen now of being this very removed figure. We want people who we can relate to. And and I think mm-hmm. their own PR strategy is that they want to be seen as down to earth and normal. And therefore you have the Princess of Wales wearing Zara or wearing Marks and Spencers. Right. And do we love that? Or do we want our royals to be in tiaras and couture all the time? That's a big contrast from people sending in their ration cards to the queen for her wedding dress, you know, which <laughs> I love that. Exactly. Yeah, that tidbit. Emma, true or false, one of the best things about parties, including imaginary ones, is playing dress up. True, true. True or false, our current clothing habits are one of the biggest contributors to climate change. Miserably true also. Which brings me back to our season three sponsor, Cezanne. Not only are their clothes so timelessly chic that you'll want to wear them over and over for decades, possibly centuries to come, but they are made well, both from a quality and from an environmental standpoint. Cezanne is a certified B Corp that sources organic textiles, ships in boxes that are either 100% recycled or sourced from sustainably managed forests, powers all of its stores with renewable energy, and has managed to reduce the carbon footprint of one garment by 17.2% over the last year. Plus, the clothes are dreamy for a Tuesday morning or for dinner with your dream guest. Visit Cezanne.com to stop browsing. A woman who marries into the royal family, let's say, and has had a life beforehand and made her own way and perhaps been a celebrity or just been at the top of her game and her career in any career. This all sounds very hypothetical, Mon. Yeah. It's very hypothetical. <laughs> Is it even possible for a woman of such independence to then, and I mean this from a fashion perspective, but I also just mean it generally, fit that mystical mold that you've been referring to. I mean, is it even possible in a, in the modern world, do you think? I think it's challenging. I, I don't think it's beyond the realms of impossibility. I think there are ways that it could be done and a, and a very careful balance could be struck. But I think that that requires, if we're speaking hypothetically, um, an mm. extreme... I'm asking for a friend. Yeah. For a, friend, yeah. <laughs> a very united strategy on how to go about that and Mm -hmm. an understanding from both sides about where the other might be coming from and Mm. I suppose obviously never been in this situation personally but it might be very difficult if you've had a very successful career in life of your own to then have people proffering their opinions on how you might act and behave and dress that that would be challenging. What you said earlier, Bethan, about fashion as language and the queen speaking fashion, 
It's so interesting because the notion of oversharing is obviously anathema to the royal family and certain public books and shows and things have created all kinds of tornadoes around this idea of like, we must not say anything. We must, what's the motto? The famous motto was never complain, never Mm. explain. And by not oversharing from a fashion perspective, like the language of fashion also involved not oversharing and not over spotlighting and not, you know, that, that line was something that she so carefully walked yeah, to Monica's point, if you were raised on social media or grew up in our era of the internet and you've already been, it's like what people say, once you put something online, it never goes away. Like if you had a previous identity that was already public as a public figure, as a celebrity, right? how do you then wash that slate and start again in this like cryptic queenly way? I, I don't know. The other members actually, women who have married into the royal family, the members of the royal family who are actually there by birth are there by birth. And then, you know, bear in mind, Diana was basically a teen and had worked as a primary school teacher, I believe. But, you know, it's not like she'd been like building up a career for ages. And um, and Catherine met um, William in university. So it's a different ball game, really. It is. And, and social media. And also just what's happened with social media in the intervening years, like even since, you know, William and Catherine yeah. first got together. It's become so everybody overshares. Oversharing is now the norm. And the Queen's whole era of, you know, not oversharing is like just really hard for our generation to understand. And it makes me think of another dinner guest that we had on this season, Dolly Parton. I know this is going to be a weird analogy, so just go with me. But both Dolly Parton (laughs) and Queen Elizabeth II are masters at not voicing their opinion and at therefore Mm. uniting. On the surface, people get Mm. mad at them. It seems cowardly. How can you not denounce Trump? How can you not do this? How can you not get mad at this person? But they actually are able to take this much bigger picture view and to kind of remove ego. You know, I'm not going to be the one by denouncing Trump to make the problem stop. And that's like a hard thing for most people to recognize. But it seems that both Dolly Parton and Queen Elizabeth were really able to understand that like, mum's the word was the best possible strategy and stayed in their lanes, which takes self-control that I can't even begin to fathom and therefore Mm. didn't alienate. That's such a brilliant point. And I think one that, yeah, it's so hard because our culture is now just completely submerged in this kind of way of being that I think, I mean, it kind of also reminds me of, I think Phoebe Philo once said that the the chicest thing is not to appear on Google, you know, and (laughs) there is just so few people now who kind of value that philosophy as, as a way of life or who can recognize the power of it. Because I think when you're ensnared in this conversation and you are the subject of all this kind of media frenzy and conversation, it would just take willpower beyond belief to step away from that and to look at the long game. And I think that successful royals are the ones who who can steal themselves for that. But I mean, it's it's a really hard task. And you, I think you have to get to a certain point before you could feel safe in doing that. And I think that is probably where some of the more some of the difficulties of recent times have come from, I think. I want to just go back to something you said earlier. You know, you mentioned the Queen 
having from quite a young age, of course, having to show up in rooms full, you know, just seas of important men and she'd be the only woman. Some see the queen as a feminist icon. Do you agree? I think that we should look up to the queen. She was never fighting for the feminist cause. I think there's many, many more people who we should be hailing or that. And she never asked for the role that she took on either. So I don't think we should be hailing her as somebody who fought to be a woman at the top. But I think the example that as feminists we could see in her is how she dealt with the cards that she was given in life. And I think the way that her life went, she could have she could have addressed that in so many different ways. And the way that she ultimately did it, I think is an example to look up to. However, if we were sitting around the table at this dinner party and we started talking to the Queen about whether she's a feminist icon, I'm sure she would change the subject. (laughs) (laughs) Right. And we will get to dinner planning soon because we want to make it perfect. Let's coin a new phrase. She was a behavioral feminist. She wouldn't have called herself one. Oh, I like it. (laughs) I do want to highlight one thing, and maybe we can just call it moving with the times, but they did sort of reverse the primogeniture rules a little bit vis-a-vis of Princess Charlotte, didn't they? Which is actually quite a bold move considering the centuries of history. So for those who don't know, I mean, people probably know this, but obviously like primogeniture, and it's all within the aristocracy, but particularly important where the crown is concerned, if you are an older sister and you have a little brother, he's the heir and not you. Until they decided that Charlotte, so there's obviously the first child, George of, of, of Kate and William is a boy anyway, so it slightly negates the issue. But then they had a girl, Charlotte, and then Louis, and it was decided that Charlotte would be before Louis in line for the throne. Like, it seems like nothing, but it's actually a really big deal. It's a huge deal. I mean, especially considering that in a lot of other monarchies, women were never able to ascend to the throne, right? Like, and isn't it odd that between Queen Elizabeth I, Victoria, Elizabeth II, like, is it just because I'm a woman or are the British female monarchs a little bit better known and kind of... Well, they definitely live longer. Yeah, well, I I mean, I absolutely love the irony, you know, that Henry VIII, spent his whole life trying to get a son out of all his six different wives. And actually the daughter that he got ended up being his most brilliant legacy. Absolutely. I mean, she's the best thing about him. Exactly. Exactly. So yeah, go girls. But um, I would say that actually in the, I mean, the British system is so complicated. In the actual aristocracy, they haven't changed the rules. So if you were the first daughter of a duke and then your parents had a, a son that was younger than you, he at the moment will still inherit. Oh, that is so frustrating. Yeah, but you know, baby steps. But I'd <laughs> argue that it's at the top that it really matters. Totally, well, I, I yeah. think it's funny that the rest of the aristocracy doesn't want to follow suit. I know. I think I think they probably do. I just think that it's such a tangled web. Mm-hmm. There's a very interesting book called Fane by a Canadian author, Anne-Marie MacDonald, that plays with that. Plays with, a, with an heir whose gender is ambiguous. Let's put it that way. Um, yeah, mm. worth a read. Wow.
Bon appétit. Should we talk about food? Are we ready? I think we're ready to start planning this dinner because if Queen Elizabeth shows up and we're not ready, it's going to be pretty embarrassing. That would be profoundly embarrassing. I have some ideas. But first, Bethan, is there anything that you would like to make sure that we have on the menu or on the drinks trolley? Okay, well, we definitely need her favorite drink, which I think was a gin and Dubonnet. That's exactly right. Gin and Dubonnet. And I'm glad yeah. you said it first because I wasn't <laughs> sure if it was like fillet in English and you had to say Dubonnet or something <laughs> to really not offend <laughs> Her Majesty. Okay, good. Yes. Gin and Dubonnet, which is a fortified wine. And we will make her a stiff one of those. Shall we all have that? Why not? I do not like the sound of that. I'm, I'm happy if Her Majesty is happy with her drink, but... I'm just going to have a normal gin and tonic. Or I might just have um, wine. I don't know. The idea of mixing them seems kind of weird to me. But maybe I'm maybe that's a terribly common thing to say. Think of it as like, yeah, think of it as a cure. Exactly. Just, just. I do love a cure. I would have a cure if we want to, if we run out of Dubonnet, just to say. Yeah. Mon, just close your eyes and think of England. Okay, and then in terms of the menu, from what I've read, and I think people are under a confidentiality clause for like 20 years after cooking for the royal family. Right, Bethan? Is that right? It sounds about right, yeah. So we know what she liked in the 90s. <laughs> and apparently... Probably hasn't changed that much. Right, one hopes that, yeah. It, I mean, she seems to be someone who's fairly steady in her tastes. So what I love is that she's a total chocoholic, according to her former chef, Chef McGrady who wrote a book about the queen's food preferences. And her sweet tooth, the preference, was this chocolate biscuit cake that sounds delicious. And I haven't had one since Edinburgh, probably. But I'm genuinely going to make it this afternoon for the girls because it's such a good idea. It's like a no-bake situation. You melt chocolate and you mix in some cream and some... You basically make like a chocolatey custard and then you crunch up a bunch of biscuits that should be tea biscuits, not digestives. Apparently that's of huge importance. Um, You're nodding, Bethan. You've done this before. And you mix it all up and put it in the fridge. Well, only because I don't like digestives, but I love a rich tea. So that is music to my ears. Okay, McVitie's Rich Tea, um, which can be found in my Commonwealth nation of Canadia Shire. So I will track some of those down. So that'll be pudding. For the main course, she apparently did not enjoy having carbohydrates with her dinner or lunch I think toast with marmalade at breakfast was okay but no she's very health conscious and would just you know obviously ceremonial important state events were one thing and I'm sure she wasn't exactly like pushing around the handmade you know fettuccine on her plate or whatever she was probably eating it but (laughs) left to her own devices she preferred to have just like a simple either game, venison, or pheasant, or salmon from the Dee River at Balmoral with vegetables. So I think at this time of year, since she liked salmon from the Dee, well, so where is this dinner taking place? Are we having, is this going to be? I think we should try and get invited to Balmoral, but I don't know if we're worthy. What do you think, Bethan? I think 100% worthy. Yeah, we should definitely. And I mean, if we were going like, like we're her new best friends, then... I think what the Queen would actually love is for the dinner party to be taken like on trays on the sofa, just because she has a lot of like banquets in her life. And yeah, true. So we could all just sit around chatting. Okay, I love that. (laughs) She did love a TV dinner as well. So we could kind of after a long day at Balmoral, you know, maybe wear kilts. 
I might be stepping too far ahead. (laughs) I really want to wear a kilt. So I guess it depends what kind of sporting we've been doing that day. If we've been, you know, fishing, then I think salmon would be delicious and we can do like a nice pan-seared salmon. Mm. Probably quite simply done because it will be very fresh and lovely with some asparagus and, you know, whatever is being grown in the kitchen garden at Balmoral at that time of year, Mm -hmm. vegetable-wise. Does that sound right? Or apparently she liked a venison burger. I love the idea of salmon and asparagus. That just sounds gorgeous to me. I can't stop laughing because once Emma and I were like at a country house party in Scotland and being the very gauche North Americans that we are. So we we were starting by doing a nice thing, which is we woke up like the morning after a big shindig and we cleaned up the kitchen, which was (laughs) frankly, and we just like didn't think anything of it. We threw out the venison leftovers from the night before because it had been sitting out all night without any kind of and you know we're north yeah, american of course it should be, everything should be surrounded okay, so you think that's life. normal okay right well we had to have an i am spartacus moment oh god yeah our friends were so upset <laughs> who threw out the venison because <laughs> they wanted to make venison sandwiches by god off with the head honestly we were taken out fishing in a leaky boat <laughs> it could have been the end. Yeah. <laughs> they were like, go back to Canada, shy, you it snow yanks. <laughs> anyway, when I'm you've glad learned to hear your that lesson. not all Brits agree. Waste not, want not. Yeah. And and the Queen was a big purveyor of that, quite rightly, having um been on wartime rations herself, etc. You know, she did was not into waste. She would have probably been really annoyed if I threw out the venison. We will not be doing that after this dinner. No. So we won't be doing we that. We'll be very carefully putting everything into Pyrex containers. And even if the humans can't eat it. The dogs, you're right. The, the dogs can have it. Yeah. The corgis. The corgis. I love, there was one description, I think it was in Spare, which Monica and I both listened to in preparation. That's why, that's our excuse. But I think there was one. We read your book first, I promise. <laughs> it's fine. I, I know I know where Prince Harry comes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, much more fascinating. <laughs> there was a description that it, it was, it's as if she walks on a moving carpet because there are always these corgis mm. running around her, which I thought was such an apt So I think we should all have moving carpets of corgis. Yeah. Yeah. And there's one thing that we absolutely must at all costs avoid as part of the meal. Can you guess what it is? No. Garlic. She abhorred garlic. When you spent your entire reign surrounded by lots of powerful men, I suppose you might know what a bit of garlic breath. um, (laughs) Yeah. Smells like. That's a really good point. Do we know what was in her handbag? Because now I'm picturing like a little tin of breath mints, but she obviously didn't need them having eschewed the garlic. Oh, well, that is the trillion dollar question. We believe that perhaps lipstick, a five pound note to put in the collection at church and latterly her mobile phone. Apparently, she sometimes used to carry a little hook in her bag that she could then take out of the bag slot onto the table and then hook the bag onto so that the bag didn't go on the floor. But it seems quite extravagant to carry a bag purely for the purpose of having a hook to hook the bag onto (laughs) in the bag. That is the ultimate fashion choice. I love that. Or fashion chicken or the egg situation. I I am going to start doing that. I admire it. Yeah. We don't want scratches and dirt and things on our bags, do we? Well, some cultures believe that a bag anywhere near the floor is very bad luck and will make you very poor. Well, Oh. 
maybe that's why she was who she was. <laughs> but yeah, the, the handbag was her shield. That was someone I interviewed for the book described it as that. And I really liked that, you know, you, the ancient medieval kings would have had their actual shields, but she had her handbag. Mm. I love that. There's no business like show business, like no business I know. Everything about it is appealing. Everything that traffic will allow. Nowhere could you get that happy feeling when you are stealing. That... They're showing a lot of florals right now, so I was thinking I could Florals? Do For spring. Groundbreaking. Okay, gang, we need to know what we're wearing. We need to think this through. Someone raised the kilts, and I love a kilt, but I also know that Emma looks really good in a kilt, so maybe she should. I am partial to a kilt. Thanks, Mom. I'd be delighted to wear a kilt. It just looks so right on I you. can't wear the Balmoral tartan, though, can I? That seems a little presumptuous. <laughs> no, you can't. No, not unless asked. No. Okay, no, I'll abstain. Can't. I'll find something. I don't think I have my own tartan, but maybe. Maybe you can find a Scot to lend okay. a hand. Yeah, this is an open call. Ideally greenish. <laughs> okay, good. A lovely knit with it would be... Really Another good. thing that just while we're on bottoms, plus fours, kept coming up in Harry's book. And I'm embarrassed that I had to Google plus fours. I assumed it was the Tweety pants, but I wasn't sure. Uh, sorry, trousers. <laughs> Tweety pants would be pretty uncomfortable. And I Googled plus fours and they're the ones that stop, right? At kind of mid-calf. They're like bloomers. Tweed bloomers. So yeah, that you yeah. wear like, that you wear them for shooting. I'm very trad. Yeah. I wouldn't say no to some plus fours. <laughs> you think you'd look rather ravishing <laughs> in a pair of... Yeah, I love, I'm loving this vibe. You can also wear trues. Like you can wear tartan trousers. Oh, that is a great look. Okay, so we have Emma sorted out. I mean, Bethan, obviously, we're going to get to you in a second. I'll tell you what I was thinking of wearing. Okay, so it's really hard because, like you, I'm completely obsessed with Diana's style, too. I know. I mean, I'm really obsessed. And I was like, I want to do a Diana tribute look, but that would just bring back all the wrong memories and make all the wrong statements. So I thought, kind of awkward. Yeah. Yeah. And so actually one thing that Catherine wears that I love is those Alessandra Rich dresses. Oh, the nice. The polka dot ones. Yeah. But they sound, it sounds really tweet when I say, oh, just a polka dot dress, but it, they're perfectly cut. They're so flattering. And she has, I think you, did you do a post about it once? There's, she has like so many of them. She has so many of them, honestly. She just has like one in every kind of different, slightly different cut and color. Mm. It's, yeah, quite a Oh, and they've got the white collar and the little buttons down the front. Mm. Yeah, but weirdly, they're like so demure, but kind of sexy, I think. Yeah, it's kind of lady gone wrong. Yeah, yes, exactly. So maybe I should do that. I mean, I have to say, last week, I went completely gaga over Megan's gold Johanna Oritz dress. Yeah, it was so gorgeous. I would say there was nothing catastrophic about that. But Absolutely. the gold keyhole dress was so beautiful. I'm not sure that this is the right royal event. In fact, I'm not sure there's any royal event, much to our point before, uh, that that dress would be entirely appropriate for. So... I'll wear that another day. She'd removed the straps as well to make it completely strapless. So right. she'd gone like fully unroyal with that. But it was fabulous. It's yeah. very beautiful. It was fabulous. But we're having a TV dinner here. You can't wear a strapless gown. <laughs> 
What are you gonna wear? Oh, we can wear whatever we want, can't we? Oh yeah, okay. Okay, okay, no, we can, we can. a big moment. The queen knows that this is a big moment for us. (laughs) That's the thing. We're meeting the queen. Bethan, what are you gonna wear? Well, I was wondering if I could just borrow a tiara from the queen. Do you think that would be okay? Oh yeah. That's never been controversial for anyone. No, exactly. (laughs) And I mean, no one's gonna see this. So I feel I could just get the one that's got like the most controversial history (laughs) and just give it a bit of an airing, you know? What about the full Um, crown from the Tower of London? I think it would be quite hard to cut up my salmon if that was, (laughs) if I was wearing that. That's Um, true. Yeah, that could be a little bit tricky. I mean, when you started talking about plus fours, I loved... Um, I was thinking like jodhpurs because I really love that kind of equestrian chic look and I feel like the queen might appreciate that as well. So could I do like jodhpurs with an, with an incredible like equestrian tweed jacket, a tiara and heels? I think that sounds ravishing. Oh, that would be so cool. It's a bit of a mashup. I don't think the queen's going to like it, but you know. I think she will. <laughs> I think she'll respect it. I also think she'd quite like, is that a Liberty pattern shirt that you're wearing right now? I think she'd like that. It is, yeah. I love the. This ruffle. is from Maria della Orden, who's a it's really uh, Spanish designer. Yeah, I think she'd appreciate. But yeah, that she too. would have worn a dress like this in her like when she was a child. She would have worn a dress made of a made of a pattern like this. Or if I wasn't going to wear that outfit, I would wear like vintage nineteen fifties couture. Oh. Mm. Okay, so we're all ready. We've got our food on our trays. Are there any subjects that we want to be avoiding at this dinner? I mean, there are probably a few. What's annoying is the subjects we should probably avoid out of politeness are the ones that we actually really want to talk about. And maybe once she's had a few of her gin and dubonets, she'd be primed for a chat. After a couple slices of chocolate biscuit cake, we could really get into it. Mm. Before we turn on the TV, should we play some, should we have a bagpipe? Should we have a piper there? I know she loved bagpipe music. I think she'll have arranged it. She'll have arranged it already. Okay, we can leave that to her. (laughs) Good, because I don't have anyone in my phone currently who bagpipes. I think she has her own Weirdly, I do. Oh. (laughs) I do know a bag. I met a bagpiper the other day. Oh, great. Well, let's book them in just in case, you know. (laughs) As a backup. What are we going to be watching on the TV? Well, I I heard that she likes... You know, kind of, I don't know, do you guys know, like, EastEnders, like, soap operas? Yeah. <laughs> like, British soap yeah, operas? Yeah, I think she loves them. Um, I think she quite likes them, but, I mean, I'm not sure that I would really want to be, I don't know if I want to watch that. I feel like maybe we need something that's a bit more backgroundy or something we can discuss. Yeah, what what could be good? I don't know, Eurovision? I kind of, yeah, I got, that's exactly, and Kate just did that wonderful um, performance, didn't yes. she? At Eurovision, which was a great success by all accounts. So she'd be feeling very proud of her. I've got it. We've got to watch Succession with her. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, yes. (laughs) Yes. Do you think she, she watched The Crown, right? Or did she hate it? I don't know if she watched it, but other members of the royal family definitely did watch it. Think so. I would have hated that if it were about me. I don't know. It's so it's so invasive, but I guess everything is so. Yeah, but it's not unflattering to the queen. No, I suppose not. I think watching like the first season of The Crown would have been fine, but watching like the last season of The Crown would have been a little bit awkward. Close yeah. to the bone. 
Another thing that might be fun to watch with her is like Sense and Sensibility, the Emma Thompson adaptation, or like the latest Emma, you know, she might be into (laughs) just some Mm. good Jane Austen adaptations. Always a safe bet, yeah. Okay, now I guess this brings us to our last question, which is what will your burning question be for her? If you can get, get a real moment where she's opening up. Gosh, I think there's so many because no one has ever got to ask her anything. So I think it would just lit, I would just open it up with what is it actually like to be you? Because she has never, ever addressed that. And there's so much drama going on around her that I think we just forget that she's a real human. And she must have emotions and feelings. And so, yeah, I would like to ask her about that. I'd also really like to ask her about her marriage and her husband, because I think... That's so weird. I was just thinking about Philip a lot Mm. as well. Because it's so sweet how she kind of saw him when she was so young and just knew that he was the one for her. And, yeah, I just think... I would love to know about like the first years of their their romance. Oh, that's a great question. Well, Bethan, thank you so much for helping us plan this dinner. I, I think that Her Majesty is about to arrive, so we better get into position. Yeah, curtsies at the ready. <laughs> Lipsticks, five pound notes in the handbags, salmon on the grill. Thank you so much, Bethan. Thank you. It's been so much fun. Well, that was very intriguing, wasn't it, Mon? It was so fun and very interesting. And I'm actually now really disappointed that we're not in reality having dinner at Balmoral surrounded by corgis. Mm, Same. It's the name of the game. (laughs) It's the nature of the beast. (laughs) It's how fantasy football players must feel. But seriously, Mon, something that Bethan said really made me think of some of our other guests from this season when she mentioned that the queen is the most known and yet unknowable person and that, you know, that's such a difficult kind of knife's edge to live on. It really made me think Mm. of not only Bob Dylan, but also Noel Coward and even Dolly, don't you think? And Dolly, as you rightly said, there were so many parallels with Dolly, which I I don't know if the queen would appreciate that I think she might uh, comparison but she might I actually think she might if she listened to our episode and did the kind of dolly deep dive which she may already have done but had she not if she did inform herself on the wonder that it's dolly I'm sure she would find it difficult to deny that that's a flattering comparison for anyone well anyway I'm sure if she had she would have given us five star reviews on apple podcasts and spotify so if you like us Please do the same. (laughs) Oh, that good segue. I like it. And if you have any questions, comments, ideas, please email us at fanfarefanmail at gmail.com. That's right. Thank you to our producers, Matt Bentley-Viney and Joel Grove. And see you next time. Toodle pip. That's all.